It's a baseball, and we're up to April 8th, 1911. And uh, it's a Saturday, and uh, yeah, Saturday evening, it's still neither Club nor Johnson is apt to weaken on salary proposition. We're still, and it looks like a lot of meaty material here on Walter Johnson and his uh, salary dispute. Uh, well, let's uh, let's just keep going because what I think or what you think, it doesn't matter because it was all over long before any of us were born. Doubtful if Johnson will pitch at all this season. His action in going home believed to close incident. Club will neither trade nor sell him. The chances are... The Washington club won't have the services of Walter Johnson this year. The departure of the pitching star from the training camp to his home at Coffeyville has made the breach between him and the club so wide that it is decidedly doubtful if even as much as an effort will be made to bring them together. Certain it is that the club will make no further overtures to Johnson and judged on his action in leaving the squad at Atlanta, Johnson is not very apt to come to the club. Ordinarily, a baseball player would not throw away $6,500 because he could not get $1,000 more than he was offered, but Johnson is a peculiar chap in his business transactions. He does not have anything to say about his stand, nor does he appear to harbor any ill feeling against the club or manager McAleer. Johnson, however, is not of the type that will weaken. If he intended to accept the club's terms, he would not have left Atlanta. He fails to see the unreasonable position he is occupying, and Johnson is not easily convinced once he has made up his mind, so that it would not be at all surprising if not another word was heard from him, and he lived in retirement on his farm. If it were any other player but Johnson, the chances are he would crawl into the fold within a week or two, but anyone who knows Johnson knows that this is not in his makeup, nor can he be charged with suffering with a case of exaggerated ego, for there is nothing in his demeanor, either on or off the field, to justify this belief. But he has peculiar ideas about money matters, and these he is not apt to change, even though he does not earn a cent from baseball this season. Johnson is one of the best spenders in baseball. Few players in the game today live more extravagantly than Johnson, and he will undoubtedly miss this life if he remains on the farm. Club will stand firm. The club's position is sure to be firm. If it had any idea of weakening in Johnson's favor, it would have never allowed the matter to go so far. It has offered Johnson every cent it intends to pay him, and even though the team finished last in the race and the crowds dwindle down, Oh, that a heavy loss will have to be endured. The club will not make any concessions to Johnson. That last sentence made no sense, but uh, I guess uh, they're just whipping out this copy. With the club, it is much a matter of principle.
It does not want to be held up. If Johnson could be reasonable, he could probably get a contract calling for $7,500 a year for the next three years, but he will not listen to this and insists upon having his pitching arm earn 27000 for him during that period. He notified the club that if he signed for 7500 this year, he would expect to raise both next year and the year following, so that in the aggregate he would receive 27000 for the three seasons. That is where the club balked. That the public should side with the club and its stand seems but normal, for Johnson is unreasonable in the extreme, though he does not see it that way and probably never will. It is, of course, foolish to try and make anyone believe that the club will not be weakened by Johnson's absence, for it will. Johnson gave promise of being a much better pitcher this year than he has ever been before. He has grown wise with experience and would have been a wonderfully successful pitcher this year. He'll surely be missed, but baseball is a bigger game than any individual in it. Washington had baseball long before Walter Johnson was heard of, and it will continue to have it. The team representing this city in the American League race has never been prominent in the race either before or after Walter Johnson came here. This year, the prospects were decidedly bright, but the absence of Johnson leaves the team standing in the race more in doubt than ever before. It is to be hoped that after a little sober reflection down on the farm, Johnson will see the error of his ways, pack his grip, and come to Washington where he would be received with open arms. But those who know the big picture best are extremely doubtful. This will transpire now. Of course, will come the period of rumor of trades. There will, of course, be other tr clubs willing to take Johnson off the local club's hands. There may be offers of trades or a vast sum of cash, but whatever the proposition, it will be turned down. Walter Johnson will play baseball in Washington or not at all in organized baseball. That is the club's ultimatum. Were it willing to sell a purchaser might be found willing to pay $25,000 for Johnson. In any other business, it would be a good policy to sell. In baseball, it would be a mistake under existing conditions. Johnson's been treated fairly here. For him, it must be said that he always gave his team his best efforts. The contract offered him this year calls for a $2,000 increase over last year. Quite a sum for a young man of 23 to turn down and go back to the farm. Young Walter Johnson making, making things difficult. Oh, oh dear, oh dear, oh dear. Uh, what do we got next here as we move, of course, shuffling from left to right. The box seat sale for opening starts Monday. Yeah, box seat tickets for the opening day at American League Park next Wednesday will be on sale at Spaldings and White's commencing at 9 o'clock Monday morning. Over 700 seats will be available. It was intended to section the boxes off, but on account of the large number to be put on sale, it is figured there will be plenty to go around. In our baseball briefs, um, in a Colorado town, there is a baseball team composed of preachers, and it doesn't take up a collection between innings either. Huey Jennings declares that manager McGraw is a very much maligned person. McGraw sometimes thinks that way himself. If next Wednesday is as warm as sunny and yesterday, 
Do you think you will make your first spring appearance at the Nationals Park? Hmm, I'm actually wondering if the Nationals owner is one of the owners of this newspaper here. But, uh, ah, there's something uh, interesting. Japs coming east have good schedule for ball games west and east chicago april 8th the schedule of the japanese ball team of the waseda university japan which will arrive at san francisco next thursday was given out at the university of chicago yesterday after playing one or more games with each member of the big eight conference the japanese team will go east where arrangements have been made for games with teams at overland ohio buffalo new york and the new england states the university of chicago will manage the waseda team during its stay in the country and yes, 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 everybody's talking about it. Johnson's case chief topic of conversation at Atlanta, Washington players divided in opinion as to whether the big twirler will come back or not. Special dispatch to the star, April 8th, Atlanta, Georgia. Walter Johnson's case is the talk of the training camp. Everything else of interest has gone by the boards. The, player can, the players can think and talk of nothing else. It is an all-absorbing topic with them and one in which they are most vitally interested over the eventual outcome. Johnson left for his home in Coffeyville, Kansas at 4.10 yesterday afternoon, bidding goodbye to the bunch of fellows and the way they shook hands with him. One would think that the Nationals were bidding him goodbye forever. Big Twirler refused to talk about his case other than to say he would not sign for a cent less than the $7,500, while the club through its representative here, Manager McAleer, is just as positive that they cannot give him a bit more than the 6500 which they offered. Johnson did not seem to be perturbed in the least over the order sending him home. He packed his grip unconcernedly, talking and chatting with the other players, and discussed chickens with Tom Fisher of the Atlanta team all during the morning. Both are chicken fanciers, and they had quite a gab fest over their op- Orpingtons. Orpingtons. O-R-P-I-N-G-T-O-N. Orpingtons. What a great word. Uh, I wonder if it means chickens. Orpingtons. Johnson did not don a uniform yesterday morning, but came to the park and watched the game from the bench. The players are about evenly divided on the proposition whether Johnson will eventually sign a contract. Some of them believe he will come across in a week or so, while others believe that the club will have to make concessions before he does sign. All during the morning, the players made bets on the quiet of a cigar that Johnson would or would not leave on that afternoon train. Those who took the end that he would stay paid reluctantly, though the winning fellow would have been glad of the chance to have the odds reversed. Manager McAleer has nothing whatever to say on the subject now that the matter has been settled in this way. He states just what happened and will go no further. The Nationals leave here this afternoon at 2.45 o'clock and will arrive in Washington Sunday shortly before noon. They leave over the Southern Railroad. Four members of the team who came to Atlanta to start the training will not be with the rest of the bunch upon their return. Ralston sold to Columbus, Corbin sold to Atlanta, and Johnson sent home her three. Chief Swain is the fourth. 
The big outfielder has been sold back to the Vancouver club and left direct from Atlanta for his old location last evening. Swain is a good ball player, but he was handicapped all during the stay of the Nationals by a cold which settled in his back, which prevented him from showing the kind of class that is necessary for a big league ball player. Swain was popular with the other fellows. There was never a more good-natured, hard-working lad than this same big fellow Swain, for every player on the club has been for him since he has been here and hopes he makes good again in his old company. Johnson was scheduled to pitch for the Shamrocks against the regulars yesterday, but in his stead, Bob Groom worked against Dixie Walker, and Bob had all the edge and then some. The Shamrocks won the game without the least bit of trouble by the one-sided score of 6-1, to one, pounding Dixie Walker's curves and fast ones as they please. The victory evens the series up again, the Shamrocks winning 6, the regulars 6, and 3 games resulting in a tie. The game this morning, which will be the last one, of course, will decide the championship between the two teams and is sure to be for blood. Doc Moyer will probably twirl it against Tom Hughes, and it should be a mighty pretty battle. The regulars tallied the only run they made in the first round. Zeb Milan led off with a base on balls off Groom. He swiped second, getting away with the ball in Groom's hand. Elberfield was hit by a pitched ball, and both advanced on Lelevelt's sacrifice. Groom tried to get Elberfield napping. Milan immediately started for the plate, and Schaefer threw the ball wild. Milan scoring with ease. Elberfield tried to score on the play, but was nipped by Groom, who covered. The Shamrocks tallied their first run in the second round. Miller led off with a three-sacker to right field and tallied when Baby Bunting set up a sacrifice fly to Milan. In the third, the Shamrocks had a perfect merry-go-round, making five hits and scoring four ones off Walker. Groom went out. But Schaefer worked Walker for a free ticket. Keith bursted Luce's single, on which Germany cantered to third. Corbin tore Luce a two-sacker to right center, sending home both base runners. Conway got out. Corbin advancing to third. Miller cracked a bingle, scoring Corbin and taking second on the throw to the plate. Summerlot singled, scoring Miller. Keith got a single in the ninth round and went to third when Lelevelt let the ball get by him. Corbin singled to center field and Keefe. Wid Curry was still out of the game with his bruised heel. He umpired the contest and gave satisfaction for both sides, though Chief Swain, who was not in uniform in one of the boxes, took great delight in kidding him all through it. Schaefer again played second and Keefe third. Corbin played his last game as a national, covering left field in Swain's place, and Corbin had a mighty good day, too. He stepped up to bait, fought back to the plate, rather, five times and cracked loose three bingles, one of them a double. Two of his bingles scored three runs, while he tallied one himself, being about the whole show in the game for the Shamrocks. He accepted three chances in the outfield, two of them being nice catches after a long run. Warren Miller is improving every day. He's showing a flash of speed on the bases every now and then that looks promising. He's a most natural hitter and stings the ball hard and for keeps. 
He got three hits, one of them for three bases out of four times up and drew a walk the other time. He tallied one run, drove in another. Between Corbin and Miller, the Shamrocks scored all of their runs, they being responsible for all of the six, either scoring them or driving them in. Greg Corbin has signed an Atlanta contract, putting his name to the document yesterday morning. He will don an Atlanta uniform for the first time Saturday afternoon and will play left field for the regulars in the game between the Cracker regulars and the Yanigans. Corbin received a little piece of change from manager Jordan for signing with the club as a little present. Zeb Milan is showing his speed to much advantage in every game. He got away from bunting in a chase Thursday, and yesterday he eluded Keefe during a chase between first and second. Zeb also pulled off another of his shoestring catches, robbing Schaefer of a hit in the first inning. Miller's hitting is earning him a warm spot in the heart of manager McAleer. The Nationals boss watches this youngster like he was his father instead of his manager. Miller's been getting all the personal attention of the Nationals boss of late with the hope that he would develop and he is showing promise. There's no kick on Miller's hitting according to McAleer and if he can run the bases with his head up, he will supplant someone in the Nationals' outer gardens. Schaefer pulled off a mighty pretty double play in the third inning on Milan, and Elberfield handing the kid's quick tap over the bag to Keefe, forcing Milan and the youngster firing it to first. Ed of the kid. John Henry broke into the limelight with a spectacular play, leaping high in the air and spearing a wild heat by Elberfield with one mitt and descending, but not on the bag. His catch saved a couple runs for the base runners, did not advance any. Andy Keefe will be the next of the Washington youngsters to get his head chopped off by the official act. Keefe is said to be slated for a berth in the Ohio and Pennsylvania League during the coming season. The youngster has been improving with leaps and bounds and gives promise of developing into a classy ball player. His position at the plate is excellent and he swings hard. Bob Groom had a mighty good day on the hurling hill. The right-hander was a trifle wild at the start, but he settled down toward the end of the game and was tight as a clam in allowing men on the bases. The boxing, the box score shows the regulars credited with four hits, but two of these were the merest scratches. Bob had everything, and had his control been perfect, he would have gotten away with a shutout game. Manager McAleer presented the Atlanta groundskeeper with a check yesterday morning as a token of his appreciation for his work during the stay of the Washington team in Atlanta. The gift was greatly appreciated by the groundkeeper, and to fitly show it, he purchased the Washington mogul a box of roses, which he gave with his compliments. Dixie Walker was peeved over the defeat handed him by the Shamrocks and got after everyone that crossed him the least little bit, rowing with umpire Conroy all through the game on balls and strikes. McAleer shut him up with the remark, Cut it out, you. What do you care about whether they are strikes or not? The ones you get over the pan are pasted to all corners of the lot. Very little you have this morning. Now that Walter Johnson has gone to his home, and there seems to be very little likelihood of his returning in time for the opening game. The allotment of pitching 
the opening game against Boston, will probably fall to either Dixie Walker or Dolly Gray. They are the best they're in the best of shape and prepared to take up a burden, certain that they can deliver a victory in the open game. And uh, now you got a box score there, which I don't think there was anything there that we haven't covered. And we're ready to move on to the second page. Oh, wait. Oh, no, no. So, yeah, we flip the page and there's nothing there. So, what do you do? What do you do when that happens? I know what you do. Of course I do. Yeah, go over and uh, let's get back. And, and while we have the opportunity, there is no reason why we shouldn't be checking out our uh, Giants, Yankees, and uh, just our evening world of the same date, April 8th, Saturday. There will be no evening world tomorrow. But we're back to news of all branches of sports. Headline across the top, Giants at home, open season with Yale. Ah, yes, the Giants. Yeah, this is definitely a Giants-favoring newspaper for whatever reason. I mean, back then, a city like New York, well, number one, New York had five boroughs that were five cities pretty much at the time, and Manhattan probably had several newspapers along Brooklyn, uh, the Bronx. So uh, there's a lot of newspapers. I suspect this was the uh, official or unofficial Giants paper. New York team returns to polo grounds confident of winning the pennant this year. Pitchers all in great form for hard season by Bozeman Bulger. Baseball jumped squarely in the middle of Father Knickerbocker's chest this morning when 45 Giants with a rollicking song came romping into town, ready for a curtain-raising affray with Yale, and then a start on the path to the pennant. Old Father Nick was caught unawares, as it were, for when the Giants took the jump on his chest, he had his ear to the ground listening for the rumble of the Highlanders as they are kicking things up away from home. These two teams are to do honor to the whole town of Gotham this summer when the sun shines warm and from present indications they are going to do it to a turn with a few extra trimmings thrown in for good measure. The consensus of opinion among the experts throughout the country is that the Giants should win the pennant in the National League and that the Hilltop crew should be fighting the athletics all the way. But about those things we never can tell. If either should win, New York will be content, for that will give King Fan World Series right at his doorstep with no long journeys by rail. But think what a game of happiness could be reached if both our bands of heroes could cop that dear old peanut, as we call it in exclusive circles, and we could have a series for the championship of the world all to ourselves and the outside world flattening its ear to the ground to hear our own private rumble. Get that dog from under the table, Jerry, in parentheses there. That must be some sort of catchphrase at the time. Get that dog from under the table, Jerry. The Giants 
are undoubtedly in the best condition right now that they have enjoyed since the annual spring journeys to the south began some years ago. Every man on the club is fit, and there are enough of them to cover any emergency. McGraw has 45 men. McGraw has more uniformed players at his command right now than any manager in the country. This meaning he brought in 45 all bubbling over for, with confidence and anxious to have themselves put to a test, and they want nothing short of a real fire either. It is unfortunate that the Highlanders could not give the local fans a peep at their army of athletes before the season begins, but the callous and unrelenting railroad schedules made such a joy impossible, and the lads of the hilltop will not be in our riotous midst until the guns have been fired, the bugs are picking out world beaters, and the season is on the way. Three days ago, manager Chase became so peeved at the continuous bad weather of the Middle West that he tried to cancel his dates and catch a special train for New York. The lack of sentiment in the railroad timetables failed him at the last minute, however, and he was forced to play out the string. Reports from the Hilltop Camp say that the cold and damp weather has played havoc with the players and that they have tightened up like drumheads. Four years ago, McGraw brought the Giants through that territory and had the same experience. As tough as that may be on manager Chase, it has not prevented the public from seeing that he has a team that is a fighting machine of the first order. By the addition of Hartzell at short and Elliott or Johnson at third, he has bolstered up that side of the diamond so that it is not overbalanced even by the remarkable strength of Chase and Knight on the other side. The pitching staff has been made more invulnerable by the addition of Abel's, the giant southpaw, who is very much of a ringer for Big Jim Vaughn. The Giants played against Abel's out in Texas, and they all pronounce him a great find for their rivals on the hill much expected of Fisher. The man who is expected to shed the most luster on the hill, however, is Ray Fisher, the spitball artist who stepped into the limelight last fall in the local series between the Giants and the Highlanders. He showed a flash of form then that proclaimed him a wonder at once. All in all, Chase has put together a club that is at least 25% stronger than it was last season, and that's saying a lot. Players are young, and even without the additional strength of recruits, the club would show an improvement. Instead of feeling an enmity, the late series between the Highlanders and the Giants has established a bond of fellowship between the two teams, and they are watching the progress of each other with more than ordinary interest. McGraw brings to New York today the best ball club that he has led since the Giants won the league championship in 1905. McGraw is authority for that statement himself, and it is rare that the Giant manager will make such a strong assertion concerning his own team. Every man on the club, even to the manager, is confident of winning the pennant and to avoid any possible weakening of the club. Every player will be carried right up to the limit of 35 men. In May, this number will be 
cut to 25, but by that time, a good line can be had on the spot where weeding can be done without danger. Added strength and subs. On the field, the Giants will begin this year with practically the same team that finished last fall. The added strength is in the substitutes. For three years now, McGraw's polished, refitted, and filed down his young material until it is as smooth running a piece of machinery as a poreless engine. Crudeness has been completely eliminated. To use McGraw's own expression, this is the first time in four years I have been able to go to bed at night and rest easy as to what my team would do the next day. To this smooth working crew has been added such men as Hartley and Gowdy to brace up the catchers, Becker in the outfield, Fletcher in the infield, and, and scrolling, and scrolling. And Tefro, Schantz, Hendricks, Rudolph, and others to the pitching. With the possible exception of the pitchers, there is not a man among the substitutes who cannot go in a moment's notice, and the club not be weakened in the least. A striking illustration of this occurred yesterday at Baltimore when the Giants were two runs behind with their strongest lineup in the field. Chief Myers, Snodgrass, and Devlin, three of the best hitters, were excused to catch an early train. It was in the eighth inning and it looked dubious, but McGraw put Wilson, Becker, and Fletcher in their places and had no misgivings. His judgment was correct, for Becker and Fletcher started a Battle batting rally that finally wound up in Wilson hitting a three-bagger with the bases full and breaking up the game. Either Ames or Raymond to pitch. The wonderful form displayed by Ames and Raymond would indicate that McGraw tends to use one or the other of them for the opening game at the Polo Grounds on Wednesday. Ames hollering like a stuck pig over the possible selection of him as he thinks it a hoodoo. Two years ago, he pitched a no-hit game for nine innings, only to lose in the 13th and have hard luck the rest of the season. Last spring, he was beaten 2-1 to one in 11 innings for a starter. Raymond, in his well-known literary style, says, Barks is willing and lets it go at that. And a uh, probable lineup for the Yale Giants game, in case you were curious. For the Giants, DeVore in left field, leading off. Doyle at second base. Snodgrass in center field. Murray in right field, batting cleanup. Merkel at first base. Bridwell at shortstop. Devlin at third. Wilson at catcher. Mark Hard will open as pitcher. And Raymond there as a backup, perhaps, or perhaps alternate starter, whereas Yale looks like a merit at third base, Corey in right field, Carhartt catcher, or Orbert at, at catcher, Badger in center field, Riley at first base, Stevens in left field, Stillwell at second base, Luttrell at shortstop, and uh, a plethora of pitchers here, Freeman, Hartwell, Scott, and Thompson. And oddly enough, this uh, rectangular squib tells us that the Hilltops also are 25% stronger than last year, says Chase.
At a Wilkes Barrow, April 8th, the placing of Johnson on the third at this time is an improvement of at least 10% on what it was last year, says manager Chase. Johnson is even better at the bag than was Austin. I'm perfectly satisfied with the team. It is anywhere from 25, 20 to 25% stronger than last year. There is not a weak spot. Every department is thoroughly fortified against any accident that may happen. There are seven pitchers now in the club, any of whom I could call on to go into the game tomorrow. Russell Ford is the only one who has not come around, but I'm not worrying about him. Just as soon as we get decent weather, he will be there, and I look for him to be better even the great record he made last season. In Vaughn Fisher... Caldwell, Quinn, Warhop, Brockett, and Abels. I have men in shape to do any kind of work even now. And we go to the far right side of our sports page where we find our Hilltoppers. Manager Chase's pick team for opening game. Burt Daniels will have to do bench duty as Harry Walter, Charlie Hemphill, and Bertie Cree will compose outfield. Again, out of Wilkes-Barre, April 8th. The Hilltops have turned into the stretch of the spring season trip and all is well. Just a few more breathing exercises remain, and then the team will be right on edge for the big race, which is to start next Wednesday, the day when Canadian reciprocity and other big questions will have to come second to the chatter of base hits, runs, errors, and other things which go with the great national game. Ah, uh, yes. Whatever that Canadian reciprocity is. Yeah, it's the temptation to fall into current news stuff. I mean, I'm sure it'll happen over the course of our uh, season, but um, I don't think it'll be over Canadian reciprocity. But we continue. And how chase is one who firmly believes that he is going to get away to a flying start. His is not a boastful attitude either. His very expression of the words that he expects to land as high as and possibly higher in the race than the club did last year brings an honest tone. Already, he has told the readers of the evening world what he expects, that he will not finish below second place, that his team has strengthened greatly over that which fought for the flag in 1910, and that the added strength to several other clubs in the circuit, made up by Ben Johnson, is going to help him land the flag as well as work a detriment to the champion athletics. Hilltops lost two games. Cold and disagreeable as has been the weather encountered since the team left Athens. The New Yorkers never slackened in their speed. True, two defeats came to them by clubs in minor leagues, namely the Chattanooga Club of the Southern League and the Indianapolis team in the American Association, but it was not superior ball clubs by a long shot to turn the trick. The Chattanooga defeat came because of the prevalence of such miserable weather as to cause Chase to refuse to take a chance with his well-conditioned pitchers and filling their places within and outfielders. 
At Indianapolis, it was just a case of too much confidence. The Hilltoppers let the Indians get away with plays because they did not want to hurt themselves in throwing. In the chilly atmosphere, which came along late in the game, following a temperature which was bearable in short sleeves. The experience in the cold climate may have its own good effect. It will make no difference. If the thermometer registers 40 degrees for the rest of the month, a team will be able to stand it and show speed in their game that would make a hockey player look like a statue in his work. The three days, which Players were forced to remain idle this week, of course, did their physical condition no good. But there is promise of fine weather from now until the opening, and Chase says that all he needs to send his men into the opening fray in as good condition as they ever were at an opening since he was born. And Chase says that it is all he needs to send his men into the opening fray in as good condition as they ever were at an opening since he has been with the club. And the boy manager has had time to think out the way he is going to send his men on that Philadelphia field four days hence. He has decided that Burt Daniels will be the player who will have to do the reserve duty. Warm the bench and lend vocal enthusiasm to his mates in the field. Here is the way the club is going to line up against the Athletics. The array looks most formidable. Harry Walter, left field. Charlie Hemphill, center field. Hal Chase, first base. Roy Hartzell, shortstop. Jack Knight, second base. Bertie Cree, right field. Otis Johnson, third base. Ed Sweeney, catcher. Jim Vaughn or Ray Fitcher, Fisher, pitching. Outside of Gene Elliott, whose arm is not yet right, there is not a surer man for getting on bases than Walter. Only the good ones does he hit at, and his eye is so keen that a strike must be a strike ere he hits at it. He is patient when he is up there, and a pitcher must work hard against him. Charlie Hemphill is an excellent sacrifice hitter and a great man for one on base to work with. Not only that, but Hemphill can line out too and his speed is wonderful. Chase, also a great slugger. No better exponent of the hit-and-run play exists than Chase himself, which is the particular reason for his being third in the batting list, and Hal has grown into a great slugger as well. In the training trip, which is uh, near... I can't read that word. He has led his men in base hits and averages around the 450 mark. He has walloped since the team began playing the minor leaguers, and he has acquired a position at the bat, which allows him to hit almost where he wants. It's not long ago that he was nothing but a left field hitter, but he can wallop to right now with the same alacrity as he used to left or center. He watches the opposing fielders in their actions and finds the place to hit ball where it would do the most good. Chase is a fine base runner, too, and needs a good man behind him. Being left-handed at the bat, Roy Hartzell got that position. Hartzell, in all the games he has played, has shown an aptitude to play the game on the Chase plan more than any new one who has ever joined the club. 
Every day chases good judgment in exchanging even such a fast fielder as Jimmy Austin and Frank Laporte for Hartzell becomes more apparent. Hartzell has fulfilled all that was expected of him. It was a hard job of him to land a regular berth on the team when such great men as Johnson and Roach were around, but it's the old I'll wind and see story. I'll wind and see? Uh, no idea what that is. It's in little uh, quotes. Story, which came good for the ex-St. Louisan. Gene Elliott got an attack of cold in his wing, and Johnson was moved to third, and Hartzell, in absence of Roach, got in the games regularly. His work was so impressive that he got the job, and will have it until he starts to take a slump. And, uh, indeed, another day passed in our look at baseball. And, yeah, we've only got a few days till the season opening. So uh, the excitement is building. And uh, I I didn't realize uh, that Walter Johnson was so young. I mean, I'm still building my context as to where these players are in their career. I mean, young Hal Chase. but this is, I have to say, I'm having a great time. I hope you guys are too as we roll along. If you have uh, comments, suggestions, what have you, uh, the email address is kpqr.torc at gmail.com. And uh, we'd be happy to hear from you, even if you uh, might be chastising me, uh, especially. I mean, if there's some names that I could... Uh, mispronounce even better than I'm currently mispronouncing them. Things like that, uh, by all means, let me know. And uh, uh, that was good. Till the next time we meet, it'll be uh, a Sunday paper. Set the controls for the heart of the fun.